1: Need something original and
0: affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours.
2: What's your sense of how the Chinese think about where we are at this moment in the trade dispute?
1: My sense is uh, they would like to see some progress on on a phase one deal. I think, you know, one thing that's striking is that uh, if you look at the basic content of a phase one deal, while it is, it doesn't hurt China much. They're just buying things they need to buy anyway and arguably would have bought two years ago um, in theory. So you kind of ask the question, well, what do they get out of it? And I think the fundamental answer is time, giving themselves more time to um, execute this transition that they're trying to uh, execute toward greater self-sufficiency in these uh, critical areas, especially in high tech.
2: Did you hear much talk about impeachment and how the Chinese think impeachment might impact them? They're definitely thinking about it. I
1: I think um, confusion is, (laughs) is the watchword. You know, there's a general sense, I think, that, well, he beat the Russia rap. So why is this a big deal? I think their sense is he's the one we're dealing with now. We have to just sort of concentrate on that. Yes, maybe it makes him a little weaker. I think there's certainly a sense it makes him more inclined to try to achieve something with the Chinese. And our behavior shows that right now, we have no strategic dialogue with China. We have the trade talks, of course, but we don't have anything in terms of you know South China Sea issues or you know other issues. There's no high-level dialogue happening on the security side. And I think they view that as problematic. Longer term, of course, their view is that they would like to see themselves basically be the dominant power in East Asia. That's very clear. But I think what's striking is their vision for the timeline, for when they might hit this status as a great power, superpower, however you want to put it, keeps coming closer. And so we used to talk a lot about 2050 or even beyond that. Now we talk about 2035, maybe even 2025. You see a lot more of that type of discussion.
2: Chris Johnson is a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He is widely regarded as one of the foremost China experts inside or outside of government. Before joining CSIS, Chris served almost two decades as a China analyst at CIA, where he and I worked closely together. This is the third time that Chris has joined me on Intelligence Matters. Chris just returned from a trip to Beijing, so I thought it would be a good time to catch up with him on all things China. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Chris, welcome to the show. It is great to have you back on Intelligence Matters. This is your third time on the show. Third time's a charm. (laughs) Um, That sets a record, by the way, for uh, most times on the podcast. So congratulations. Glad to be back. So you just returned from a trip to Beijing. Yep. And there's a lot going on, so there's plenty to talk about. But let me start by asking you about your trips to China. Mm Mm-hmm. How often do you go? Mm -hmm. How long do you stay? Do you Mm -hmm. also get around the region as well as to China? Mm -hmm. What kinds of people do you talk to? How Mm -hmm. does all that work?
1: Yeah, uh, well, I go uh, multiple times per year, um, no fewer than six or seven, and sometimes, you know, 10 or 11. So I'm, I'm over there a lot. I just find, you know, in the current uh, conditions and especially sort of the ecosystem that Xi Jinping has created, it's much easier to go and, and talk to people. You know, it's just very difficult to try to gain insight. From travelers, or or from just reading the media or things like that, um, I do often travel in the region as well when I'm out there. Um, but mainly, I make a point when I'm in China of also trying to. Get out of the major cities, either Beijing or Shanghai, and make sure that I'm going to, you know, some more far-flung province. Because you really can't get uh, a good picture of the country if you're only hanging out in the in the main municipalities. Yeah. And, you know, speak to a range of people while I'm there, Old con- long-time contacts of mine. Uh, obviously, with my um, affiliation with CSIS, you know, oftentimes it's attending conferences and things like that. So talk to academics, talk to officials, things like that to try to um, gain insight.
2: Do you set up these things yourself there isn't like yeah. yeah there's like somebody in China who sets up all these meetings no, for you No
1: and yeah. and if um, if I hear you know if I get a conference invitation obviously they take care of that part but yeah I'll set up my own meetings okay. exactly So when you're in China mm-hmm.
2: do you ever feel pressure direct or subtle mm-hmm. for how you talk about China when you're back here
1: No I, I I've not had that experience. I I think maybe some others have, but um, I I have not in my experience.
2: Yeah. So with that in mind, what's your take on the recent issue between the NBA and the Chinese?
1: Yeah, my How sense, do you think about that. Well, my sense is that you hear different versions, and it's interesting. I think the overarching point is it's troubling, right? It's troubling for U.S. companies. It's it's troubling for U.S. citizens who are are here exp- trying to express themselves freely on social media and so on and that the Chinese government can use its market power um, to silence people. I mean, if you look at what happened in that episode, the NBA clearly handled it poorly um, from a PR point of view, but you look at several NBA stars who basically came out very directly and said, this is money versus freedom, and I'm choosing money. So um, that was quite striking. Um, In terms of how it went down or what happened, uh, you hear different versions. I think what we have seen of recent is that The Chinese propaganda organs and something of a change, and we'll talk perhaps a little bit about what's going on domestically, now increasingly are the voice of how China responds to international concerns, international criticism, or just developments instead of the foreign ministry, right? So the the diplomats who one would expect, who have the nuance and so on they're just kind of reading off a sheet that the propaganda department gives them. And that's a big change. And obviously then there's oftentimes uh, the likelihood that it'll be overplayed. So so for example, my understanding is that um, the propaganda organs kind of led with their face and got out over their skis and President Xi actually was not very happy um, with how that went. And you can kind of see that in the arc of the story in China, you know, big spike of fervor and then silent, you know, very quickly thereafter.
2: So is the difference between the foreign ministry commenting on an issue and the propaganda arm essentially telling them what to say is the propaganda arm is thinking about the Chinese domestic audience and the diplomats would be thinking about a foreign audience. Is that...
1: That's, that's part of it. I think it's just also, you know, propagandists are by nature more nationalistic, more conservative, certainly more ideological, right, than, than your average uh, diplomat who might be more cosmopolitan or obe- yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Okay, Chris, politics in China. hmm Several questions. One we talked about um, the other day when we saw each other, and that's President Xi's political position. Mm -hmm. How would you describe it? Mm -hmm. Is he in any political difficulty, which is a thing one hears from time to time? Mm -hmm. How do you think about that?
1: Yeah, uh, it's my opinion, you know, from this trip and just really from positive observable fact that President Xi remains, uh, shall we say, large and in charge uh, inside the system. Um, There is obviously grumbling about some of the things he does, Uh, you know, as we've discussed before on the podcast. There are concerns about the removal of term limits on the presidency. There are concerns about the failure to signal the succession. And in fact, as we saw in the plenum, the fourth plenum that was concluded last week there was a lot of speculation that maybe the, signal, the succession may be signaled um, and that there would be promotions to the Politburo Standing Committee, uh, one or two people, something like this, that would signal a succession. Um, but it didn't happen. <laughs> and I think really that's the best indicator of of Xi Jinping's strength. I mean, unfortunately, uh, the problem with whispers, right, is, is that they're hard to um, do away with, right? So my guess is even with positive observable fact, strong facts like that, um, the, these rumors will continue, primarily because the economy is slowing, Hong Kong is a problem, which I'm sure we'll discuss, and other factors. A- and there's just a lot of people who don't like what Xi Jinping is doing, but we forget sometimes that there are a lot of people who do.
2: Can you describe him as a person, mm-hmm. his mindset, mm-hmm. how he thinks about things?
1: You know, my general sense is uh, he is someone who is ideological. You know, he's a, he's a true Marxist. Um, I think he has a certain uh, sense of himself as a man of history. We see that um, quite a bit in terms of this equating of his personal rule with China's rise. Um, and in fact, I think really... The more subtle domestic gambit that he's been up to in the last several months and it's playing out over time is to kind of formalize this inseparable link between his personal rule um, and the rise of China. Uh, And we see that manifesting itself in several ways, one of which is this occasional references to him probably building towards some sort of formal designation of Xi Jinping as the people's leader. Um, And then, of course, equating the people with the party. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So the people are those who support the party and those who do not are not the people. And that's a very interesting sort of dance that we're seeing going on.
2: You tie tie everything together.
1: Correct, exactly. And and the forge, if you will, on which he's uh, making this chain is this idea of struggle, right? Uh, he gave a big speech. He's given two, actually, this year, talking about these struggles. And they cover all the areas, you know, very diverse areas that one might expect, um, the struggle against environmental degradation, the struggle to become self-sufficient in technology, and, of course, the struggle against Western values and the U.S. Cold War attitude uh, is, is something that we often hear from Xi. And then I would just uh, emphasize as well, one thing that's interesting about him, you know, we see a lot of comparisons now to Mao Zedong, or even Stalin. Um, I guess my problem with those comparisons is that those people were whimsical people. Uh, Xi Jinping is not whimsical. He's pragmatic. Uh, I think he approaches things in a very sort of thoughtful, measured way. And in fact, that might make him harder to deal with. Whimsical people you can head fake. (laughs) So what is his
2: vision of China in the world?
1: I think basically the the main piece is um, they're trying to make the world safe for the Chinese Communist Party, if you will. In other words, they have a system. They believe it works for them. They look at the track record of recent, both of their own system and some of the struggles, let's face it, that the democratic systems have been having. Um, and their view is uh, they should be allowed to pursue that system. And so it's a helpful... Way of framing it, I think, because it does show us that there's a challenge from China, no question, um, in that they're seeking to um, sort of proselytize a narrative, just like we have our own narratives about freedom and democracy and so on. They have theirs about the effectiveness of their system. But it also suggests that there are some limits uh, to their ambition. In other words, they may not necessarily want to overturn the rules-based global order. They just want to mess it up. <laughs> and in fact, uh, that could be even more troubling, right? In other words, if they don't have a plan to replace the rules-based global order, but would rather just see it messy, that's bad for everyone.
2: Yeah. Is it a way to think about it as follows, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but In terms of their international relationships, if it's all about supporting the party at the end of the day and the party's position at home, is it to get out of those relationships as much as you can economically? Because that, at the end of the day, is what supports the party?
1: That's a big part of it, for sure. Um, And and I think also, though, it is this idea of trying to legitimize you know, China's international role and, again, the validity of their system. So when we look at what they're doing mm-hmm. at the UN, for example, where they're trying to inject certain of their key phrases such as uh, the community of uh, shared prosperity for humanity and things of this nature, that's an effort as well to kind of gain international legitimacy without democratization. They're finding it's a fairly difficult trick, yeah, actually.
2: Yeah. So what's different? What's different with Xi Jinping from his predecessors, Hu Jintao and Zhang Zemin. I mean, how does, particularly in terms of China's role in the world, how do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think in the, uh, certainly in the Jiang era and also in the Hu era, uh, we saw, you know, the remnants, if you will, of Deng Xiaoping's old adage about hiding your uh, capabilities and biding your time, right? In other words, keep a low profile internationally, don't stick your head up. Um, Xi Jinping has definitely done away with that. Um, We see that most clearly in the work report that came from the last party Congress, the 19th party Congress, where really for the first time since the Cultural Revolution, as I said earlier, they suggested they have a model that might be applicable outside of China. So I think that's a huge difference. Then I think uh, another significant difference, obviously, is those guys were sort of struggling within the confines of a highly collectivized leadership system. So therefore, lowest common denominator international policies um, tended to come out the other end. Xi Jinping has a lot more freedom of action. Sometimes that can be good in terms of moving, you know, certain things forward. Um, Sometimes it can be bad in that there's sort of a hastiness on occasion to, to his actions.
2: Right. So he set himself up to stay in power for
1: a long time. Yes. How long do you expect Well, there's a lot of controversy over that. Um, Obviously, by removing the term limits, technically he can be president for life. Um, My own sense is that the third term, so the next round, is pretty likely – um, he'll be able to make a case, I think, that there's a lot of unfinished business, um, that this is a critical period for China's modernization and, and this new long march that he's talked about, for example. Um, but once you get past that, I suspect there will start to be a lot more agitation, you know, from various groupings within the party. I mean, he has effectively suppressed factionalism within the system, but that doesn't mean it's not still there. Um, and that folks have attitudes and, and so on. So, um, You know, we've got at least five more years. Let's put it that way.
2: And as you said earlier, there is no indication that he's grooming a successor.
1: If he is, he's not indicating it. Um, You know, one presumes he has this in the back of his mind um, and, and is certainly thinking about it. But there's no, you know, that's another domestic significant difference. Previously, you know, a new party secretary would be chosen. They would serve a first term. Then they would get a second term, and in that second term, the successor would be pretty clearly identified. That did not happen at the last Party Congress.
2: One last question about Xi and I. You said something earlier that was interesting, right? Right, that people compare him to Mao, and you don't think that's or Stalin, and that's those aren't great comparisons. Is there a leader, current leader in the world, or a leader from history that you think he is comparable to? Mm, That's that's a tough
1: tough one. (laughs) That's that's a tough question. Uh, I know. Not off the top of my head. I mean, I think actually, in a way, you can argue he's a fusion, you know, maybe of a bunch of different people. I mean, obviously he has certain tendencies that remind us a bit of Putin. Um, they get along very well, they celebrate birthdays together <laughs> and kind <of> so weird. <laughs> on. it is kind of weird, but they do, and I think you know what what they see in each other is basically each other, and that's why the relationship is good. So when they look at each other, they see a strong and confident person like they are, someone who's very committed to the system in their country like they are, and more importantly, will go to the mattresses for that system. And then also the issue of color revolutions, of course, which is something that really, really binds them together. And then I think also sometimes in terms of his pragmatism or at least his political skill, you know, maybe a Richard Nixon or mm-hmm. or even an Angela Merkel, who has managed to survive very long in, in German politics and, and, you know, stay in power a long time. That's his sort of more pragmatic side from my yeah, point of view. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, the trade
2: dispute mm-hmm. between the United States and China. There's an announced agreement on the outlines of some sort of phase one. Correct. Although nobody's quite sure exactly, <laughs> you know, what's in that. Yeah. What's your sense of how the Chinese think about where we are at this moment in the trade dispute?
1: My sense is uh, they would like to see some progress on on a phase one deal. Um, they would like, I think, to see the issue of tariffs addressed. You know, we have sort of three batches really of the tariffs. There's a, there's a threatened uh, set of tariffs that will come into place on December 15th. There's some existing uh, batch from September 1st that we're in. And then, of course, there's the original $250 billion in, in tariffs. I think the Chinese uh, desire is to, you know, definitely the December 15th is out. They think Trump won't do that because it's so close to Christmas. Eliminate that September tariff and see what they can do on that original 250. And, of course, uh, Ambassador Lighthizer is kind of dead set against that last bit. Um, so it will be interesting to see. In terms of the broader picture... I think you know, one thing that's striking is that if you look at the basic content of a phase one deal, while its it doesn't hurt China much, they're just buying things they need to buy anyway and arguably would have bought two years ago um, in theory. So you kind of ask the question, well, what do they get out of it? And I think the fundamental answer is time, time in the near term to keep tariffs you know, either where they are or lowered, uh, time to stockpile critical things like chips and so on under these temporary general licenses from the Commons Department. And then I think time in the sort of mid or or more strategic sense of giving themselves more time to, um, you know, execute this transition that they're trying to uh, execute toward greater self-sufficiency in these uh, critical areas, especially in high tech.
2: How do you think they're thinking about how the president's going to play the trade issue between now and the election?
1: Well, I think that's a, a serious concern of, of theirs. Mm-hmm. So so. One uh, concern I hear frequently expressed from them is if we sign on to Phase one and we purchase a, a lot of agricultural products and we you know make some concessions on intellectual property and so on, but that original 250 billion in tariff stays on what motivation do we have to get into phase two if we're not being given any sense of progress? And how do we know that it won't then just stay in place through the election? And who knows whether President Trump will still be president, you know, after that election. So I think that's a real concern of theirs. That said, I think there's a duality to it. Uh, my sense is they also feel they should try to accomplish as much with President Trump as they can. You know, they do have some concerns if it was a Democrat administration that they might overturn, you know, the deals that are made, but. We all know that, you know, it's a lot harder to turn, overturn something that's already been signed. Um, so I think they're eager to try to make as much progress as they can. We're going to take
2: a quick break to hear from our sponsor. And we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Chris Johnson.
0: Okay, it's time to commit. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
2: So, Chris, in that same light, right, did you hear much talk about impeachment and how the Chinese think impeachment might impact them?
1: They're definitely thinking about it. I, I think um, confusion is, is the watchword. I mean, you know, there's a general sense, I think, that, uh, well, he beat the Russia rap so you know why is this a big deal and and to be honest i think you know oftentimes the chinese certainly um, ask for quid pro quos with foreign governments and so on so perhaps it's a little a little more um uh, confusing to them as to why this is a is a problem you know i think their certainly their sense of our political system has improved over the years they've spent a lot of effort trying to become smarter about it But day-to-day, I think they still largely are confused by it. Um, I think their sense is, again, he's the one we're dealing with now. We have to just sort of concentrate on that. Yes, maybe it makes him a little weaker. I think there's certainly a sense it makes him more inclined to try to achieve something with the Chinese, and our behavior shows that.
2: Do you think they have a preference on what comes next? It's hard to say,
1: but uh, I find it very uh, telling, for example, that Speaker Pelosi the other day made a big point on China, really the only thing she said of recent on China policy, in noting that, you know, in effect, Democrats would be just as tough in terms of how we deal with these uh, IP theft issues and so on. But we would be tougher and smarter uh, in that we would be working with the allies and President Trump does not. And, you know, I think there's certainly a sense uh, in China that another four years of Trump equals another four years internationally of some chaos, I guess, is the way to put it in terms of the U.S. ability to forge coalitions with the allies that then could effectively push back. I mean, you know, one of the key challenges that we're facing is that if there's a flaw, in our strategy, whether it's Ambassador Lighthizer on the trade side or, or previously John Bolton on the security side, it's that we still think we can do this unilaterally. And I have serious doubts that's right, the case.
2: Right. I mean, I believe
1: that withdrawing from the Trans-Pacific
2: Partnership or not going forward with the Trans-Pacific Partnership was a huge strategic mistake. I agree. If the president were to change his mind on that, mm-hmm. is do you think that's still possible from a regional perspective
1: or... Yes. Is that time passed? No, I don't think the time's passed. I mean, they would always welcome the U.S. because we're a massive market. I think what's different is don't think you're going to come in and try to renegotiate it. I mean, that's really the issue. I think the the notion, even from close allies, has been we're moving ahead. This thing is done and dusted from our perspective. If you want to sign on to how it looks now, we welcome you. Um, But don't think you're going to come in and try to make a bunch of changes.
2: Yeah. And then kind of last question in the U.S.-China realm. How would you describe Beijing's strategy for dealing with us, you know, not on the trade issue or or specific issues, but more broadly? What's Mm -hmm. their strategy for dealing with the United States, both in the short term and the long term?
1: Yeah, I think. In both the short-term and the long-term, but particularly the short-term, the idea is simply to get some stability um, in the relationship, some stability and some predictability to bind us into the, you know, sort of what we had before in several previous administrations, a series of high-level dialogues. That explore, you know, critical issues between the two sides. You know, right now we have no strategic dialogue with China, none. Um, And we have the trade talks, of course, uh, but we don't have anything in terms of, you know, South China Sea issues or, you know, other issues. There's no high level dialogue happening on the security side. And I think they view that as problematic. Um, some analysts would say that's because they just want to tie us up in a talk shop that, you know, never really does anything. And there's there's some truth in that, given how they behaved in previous dialogues. Um, some others would just say, actually, no, they want that, you know, for that sense of stability. I mean, longer term, of course, their view is that they would like to see themselves basically be the dominant power in East Asia. That's very clear. Um, you know, do they have ambitions to float aircraft carriers in the Mediterranean? Probably not anytime soon. But I think what's striking is that if you look at what Xi Jinping has done and and a lot of the sort of official commentary and so on, their vision for the timeline for when they might hit this status as a great power, superpower, however you want to put it, keeps coming closer, right? So we used to talk a lot about 2050 or even beyond that. Now we talk about 2035, maybe even 2025. You see a lot more of that type of uh, discussion. So, Chris, their
2: views of us in general mm-hmm. right on where we're going as a country on where our policy is headed toward them mm-hmm. how do they think about that
1: well i think one of the challenges we're facing uh, with regard to how they see us is uh, you know as good dialectical thinkers right of course uh, they made an assessment actually some time ago i would say certainly around the time of the global financial crisis maybe even before that uh, two things, basically. One, that this conflict of some sort was inevitable. That's one point. And two, that the U.S. is in decline. And one of the things I think that has been unhelpful, as it was put to me recently uh, by a Chinese person, was that um, we keep affirming their dialectical and teleological mm-hmm. thinking with what's happening here, right? So the global financial crisis, of course, the rise of Donald Trump, the withdrawal from alliance commitments and these sort of things, you know, they see that all as self-affirmatory of the judgment that, they, that they've already made. Um, and so I think that's um, a very important thing to uh, take into consideration.
2: So this this world that they grew into, mm-hmm. right? They clearly benefited from the stability Definitely. that was provided by the United
1: States. Do yes. they
2: understand that? They do. They do. And who do they if who do they think is gonna provide that if not the United States
1: well, I think actually they're worried about that I mean you know it's it's another one of these dualities that uh, that they face you know thankfully uh, again as Marxists they're very comfortable with contradictions but uh, <laughs> um, you know I think their concern is we never liked the u s world policeman thing. You know, that's too much, right? Um, but we don't want to have to try to fill that role. And in fact, I don't see any ambition on their part to want to fill that role. Why would you do so when you've done so well free writing And when you do that, you have to choose sides. That's right. right. And when you choose exactly. sides, you, you, you lose one as a market. It starts getting messy. Right. Exactly. And I think, you know, that's really the issue is that you know, if we try to play this as some kind of uh, new Cold War, uh, you know, an ideological death struggle between our our, our two countries, I think that's going to be a big mistake because because of its size, influence, economy and so on. um China's just a different beast than the Soviet Union. I mean, a key example, uh, one thing that worked well for the U.S. in the Cold War was Soviet international isolation. China is not isolated internationally.
2: Right. And you're not going to contain them economically. Definitely not. They're going to break through those chains. Correct. So how, and I think I know the answer to this question, but I want to ask it anyway, the president's decision in in northern Syria, right? Yeah. How would they look at that?
1: I think, you know, it's problematic. Um, I think they certainly would take from it perhaps, here's a guy who basically doesn't like wars. You know, I, I was never a fan of the notion that uh, President Obama's Syria red line then emboldened the Chinese in the South China Sea. I I think that's wrong. What did embolden them in the South China Sea was our failure to respond to the Scarborough Shoal situation um, at the time that that occurred. Um, But they're certainly looking at it. And I think actually it's a good point because it might be one of these areas where they're actually concerned is the U.S. kind of pulling out of the Middle East. You know, President Trump talks a lot about that we don't need them anymore. We have uh, domestic energy security and so on. And how strange is it that on something like Syria, President Putin and Turkey's Erdogan are discussing, you know, the settlement. That's crazy. There's no U.S. role. So I'm sure it's perplexing to them. And I don't think they necessarily love that idea.
2: Right. I mean, stability in the Middle East is pretty important to them.
1: Very much so. Um, They're now the chief customer, not us.
2: (laughs) So, Chris, Hong Kong.
1: Yeah. Walk us through
2: where we are in Hong Kong mm-hmm. and how we got there.
1: Yeah, uh, well, where we are, I think, is a bit of a mess. Um, you know, the situation remains uh, pretty unstable. You know, the I think a lot of folks didn't think perhaps that this would be as persistent as it has been. Um, you know, we had the umbrella movement, obviously, in 2014 um, that, you know, went for a decent amount of time but then putered out. I think Beijing continues to hope that this will burn out. And, you know, there's been some evidence of that um, in the recent series of protests in that you know, that clearly, the Chinese are embarking on an effort to separate what we might call the day trippers, you know people who want to enjoy getting out for a good protest on weekends <laughs> um and the hardcore right or the where the people who are you know molotov cocktail bombing uh m r t stations subway stations and and the like so there's some sense that that is is kind of working, but there's clearly no plan you know um as to how we got here, you know a lot of people. Blame uh, China's increasing sort of stranglehold on on the territory or at least not necessarily living up to its commitments uh, about Hong Kong autonomy and rule of law and this sort of thing. That's definitely true. That's a, that's, a, that's a big issue. I think the bigger issue, though, actually is the greed of the Hong Kong tycoons, the property developers in Hong Kong. This has caused a lot of the concern about housing prices and the lack of availability for um, young middle class people to be able to get housing and so on. Um, That's a serious issue. uh, And I think that has to play out domestically. And we're now seeing...
2: So this isn't only about the relationship with Beijing. No, no, a
1: lot of these factors are Hong Kong centric, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and have been going on for a long time. And, you know, definitely in the past, there were Hong Kong governments that were talking to these property barons and saying, you know... Give us some land. How about we do a Singapore-style social housing, you know, experiment, something like that? Um, and that just didn't happen. Now, you know, obviously the mainland is not helping the process here, but some of these societal conflicts and tensions are unique to to the place.
2: And have the protesters become more radical over time?
1: I think so, uh, in general, um, although it's hard to say. One thing that's very fascinating is that at least the sort of more mainstream people. There's a fellow named Jimmy Lai who's a Hong Kong publisher. He recently was in the U.S. and spoke to Congress. One thing they are picking up on is the violence is tough for U.S. support. You know, they heard this on the Hill. Uh, Vice President Pence mentioned it in his recent speech. So it's hard for us to give full-throated support to the demonstrators when they're embarking on violence. violence. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, so they're picking up on that.
2: So if you're in Beijing, Mm -hmm. how do you look at this?
1: Well, I think you see it as very problematic. I mean, one thing that was striking, and again, I think it speaks to Xi Jinping's pragmatism, I certainly was of the opinion with this going on and the uh, October 1, 70th anniversary of the PRC, which was very important to them, approaching, I thought, well, they're going to want to try to stop this thing. You know, the last thing they want is a counter-parade, effectively, (laughs) happening in, in Hong Kong, but they allowed it, which was very interesting. I think there's a number of reasons for that, one of which was... Perhaps to some degree their paranoia, you know, if they had moved security forces from the mainland in to take care of business, shall we say, they could have gotten stuck down there and would not have been present on the mainland for for those celebrations, things like this. But they made a decision. And I think there's a general sense amongst the leadership that or at least it's a line, I think, that's used internally occasionally, which is um, if we were to engage in a violent crackdown, this is playing into a U.S. plot, a U.S. trap to isolate us again like after Tiananmen, just as our rise is hitting its stride, and I think that has a, a lot of um, resiliency inside their is system. Is there a Taiwan connection here too? Well, certainly. I mean, there's a Taiwan connection from the point of view of uh, you know, with my Chinese Communist Party goggles on, you mm-hmm. know, I can I can basically understand most of their policy toward Hong Kong. The one area where it doesn't make sense is the demonstration effect for Taiwan. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're President Tsai or you're the um, independence leaning party, the the DPP. And you're looking at this. You're saying that's one country, two systems. No thank you. Right. And in fact, right. I think they basically concede that the mess in Hong Kong will hand re-election to President Tsai. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, something they would prefer not to see.
2: Mm-hmm. So, what would have to what would have to happen for Beijing to crack down in Hong Kong?
1: I think we would have to see uh, perhaps uh, some even stronger efforts at you know some sort of sense of separation, or that there's a real independence moving going you know um I think it was interesting as well that the demonstrators you know several it was probably more than a month ago now. At one point, they had a a parade where they wound up at the U.S. consulate. They were carrying U.S. flags. They were singing, you know, the U.S. anthem, things like this. Um, That kind of stuff obviously very much um, sets off that color revolution alarm um, in in China's head. But I think we would have to see really serious domestic disorder there before they would uh, move in. I mean, one of the challenges is... What can – there is a, a PLA, People's Liberation Army, garrison in Hong Kong, of course, but there aren't a ton of troops there. You know, What can they do that 40,000 Hong Kong police can't? And I think that's another piece that's often underestimated. Hong Kong actually has many more things within their domestic mm. emergency powers that they can use and would use mm. before there would be a violent crackdown.
2: Is there knowledge in China of what's happening in Hong Kong?
1: Uh, certainly among the elites, uh, there there's knowledge. The average person has some sense. Uh, I would say Chinese who live right across the border in Shenzhen or Guangdong, they have a pretty good idea probably of what's happening down there. But if you're in Beijing or certainly you're in some far-flung western province, you probably have little idea of what's happening other than what the official media tells you is happening.
2: And if you're an average Chinese person... Um how would you look at this? How would you look at
1: Hong Well, it's Kong? quite striking. I mean, you know, we often poo-poo China's official propaganda, but it can be quite uh, compelling. I mean, it's striking uh, when I'm of recent, when I'm in China and I'm doing my usual sort of, you know, taxi driver <laughs> intelligence <laughs> gathering on the matter. The lines that you hear are things like, um, you know, spoiled children. Uh, they don't understand the beneficence of China and all the good that China has done. Um, these sort of things. You know, it's kind of funny, right? President, uh, Vice President Pence in his recent speech said, uh, you know, we, we rebuilt China over the last, you know, 40 years. The Chinese very much rankle at that. But they don't mind, you know, talking about how much they've done for Hong Kong. When, of course, Hong Kong has done a lot for the yeah. mainland's yeah. development. Chris, one last question. If you think about
2: U.S. interests in the world mm-hmm. and Chinese interests in the world, where are they in conflict with each other and where are they, where is there some consistency, where is there some overlap? Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I think on the on the overlap side, uh, we have a perennial set of issues that we've been trying to work on together for some time. Uh, North Korea's nuclear problem. Obviously, there's no real solution there without Chinese help and assistance, although they are a very difficult partner uh, to work with on that subject. Climate change, you know, we're seeing the alarm bells being rung louder and louder uh, by scientists and by international participants. It was a big feature at the UN General Assembly meeting this year. Um, other sort of non traditional threats, I think there areas where we can work together. Um, in terms of areas where we're in conflict, I think a lot of it depends on first, both sides in my mind need to conduct something of a more zero base review of the other side's uh, ambitions globally, right? And make an assessment, which of those ambitions can we accept and which ones can we not accept? And those that we can accept, you communicate that at a very high level. We can accept these things and let's try to work together on them. And those that we cannot accept, I think we have to telegraph that as well at a very high level, probably set them out as red lines for us and then operationalize the red lines by actually having our actions meet what we say is a red line. (laughs) So the other leadership can see they mean it when they say it's a red line. And they get to do the same thing. Absolutely. They need to do the same thing. Because of their clout in the world Absolutely. They need to do the same thing. And I would say they have had some some efforts at that, I think, over recent years. But they could do more. Um, And, you know, again the what this highlights is the absence of meaningful strategic dialogue we're not right. having those conversations right. and i think that's problematic
2: and absent the kind of strategic dialogue you're talking about where are we going to be in 10 years do you think and i know that's an unfair question but
1: it's a tough question but i think you know what we're seeing now looks a lot like i think what we might be seeing you know unless there's some sort of a decided effort by by both governments to try to say okay this is tilting toward conflict or downward spiral or however you want to put it um, what can we do to try to arrest that I think if we don't do that we're going to find ourselves um, in, in big trouble with each other because assumptions are being made right and there's no opportunity to be able to uh, uh, adjudicate that by talking to each other yeah, and
2: I just want to I, I just want to kind of make a point and get your reaction to it I think sometimes when people hear China experts say what you just said mm-hmm. they assume you want to give in to China hmm Right That they get a voice and we're going to talk to them about what what what's important to us and they get to talk about what's important to them,
1: right and that's not what you're saying at all. No, not at all. Um, I, in fact, I think it's the opposite. Uh, you know I mean having a meaningful dialogue can be done from strength uh, and you know my own sense in fact, is that um, giving in to them in a way would be doing nothing uh, like we're doing now because in effect we're seeding the field to their narrative, which is increasingly powerful. Chris, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure, Michael, thank you.
2: That was Chris Johnson. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
0: This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell, brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Pond and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.